0: Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. As Clint said, we're wrapping up a sermon series today uh, out of the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations was written shortly after the destruction of Israel's capital city, Jerusalem, by the Babylonians. And this book is comprised of five poems, each poem lamenting Israel's ruin. Have you ever wondered why there's so much poetry in the Bible? Nearly 27% of the Bible's verses are poetic in nature. In fact, only seven of the 66 books of the Bible contain no poetry. More specifically, why do you think Jeremiah, the, the poet here in Lamentations, decided to write this book in the form of five poems? You can answer. I'm kidding, you don't have to answer. I will answer. Uh... Writing poetry requires mindfulness. It requires that we sit with our thoughts and emotions until they form themselves into words. And so poets are in tune with their internal and external worlds. They use external images and metaphors to express internal realities more accurately and more acutely. And when we're hurting, this exercise offers powerful healing qualities. In fact, um, some psychotherapists actually prescribe poetry as a way to process pain. Some studies suggest that creative writing in this way can improve social, emotional, and sometimes even physical health. In the aftermath of 9-11, a New York Times article noted that an unprecedented number of Americans were turning to poetry for consolation. That's because some catastrophes simply cannot be described with ordinary language. If that was true of 9-11, then surely it was true of the utter decimation of the ancient city of Jerusalem. Because in the midst of all that chaos and disorder, the author of Lamentations turns to poetry as he processes that catastrophe. And here in a bit, we're going to take a look at the order and structure he uses to do so. But first, we're going to work steadily through this chapter, verse by verse. Before I begin, who is ready to be done with lamentations? Anyone? You can admit it. Uh, It's tough content. This was a dreary day. I have a grumpy resting face. Um, I'll admit it, but we are going to sprint through the finish line today, all right? With more of the same. But listen closely. Uh, Use your imagination and try to empathize with Israel. Imagine you have fallen from your place of privilege. The heights is reduced to rubble. Everything you once owned has been plundered. Imagine ISIS has defeated the U.S. military and occupied Houston. Houston. There are no restaurants, there are no grocery stores, your entire family is starving. Picture yourself living in those conditions. And as a side note, it's worth worth remembering and acknowledging that Christians are living under these conditions at this very moment. Brothers and sisters with whom we will spend eternity. And so if if the season of Lent has flown by you because everything's great and you don't really get it Uh, it's at least worth praying a prayer of lament for them. All right? Verse one. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. The first verse serves as an introduction to the chapter, and the, the poet prays asking God to consider Israel's affliction. We're supposed to understand that this entire chapter is addressed directly to God, so everything that the poet says is to God. Verse two, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. So this, this land of their inheritance has been turned over to foreigners and pagans. And if, we, if we jump back in the story, God promised this land to Abraham. God saw to it that the people of Israel would get this land and occupy this land and own this land, and now they've lost it. verse three, We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. Israel, they become like orphans and widows. They are utterly helpless in material need with no one to provide for them and no one to protect them. Widows and orphans. Verse 4 We must pay for the water we drink, the wood we get must be bought. So they're required to purchase the basic necessities that they previously owned. They're having to buy back what was taken from them. Verse five, our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. They're constantly under threat of attack, sleeping with one eye open, which is exhausting. All right, verse six, we have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. And this verse is actually very telling it reveals just how faithless the people of Israel had become because God had always provided their bread. But they have resorted to begging for bread from their enemies. And not just their enemies, these are their former captors and masters. And so they are, rather than trusting God for bread, they are voluntarily enslaving themselves again. In fact, in verse 8, we see that they become even lower than slaves. Babylon's slaves are ruling over them, which adds insult to injury. Rather than trusting God for bread, they enslave themselves again. Isn't that what we do? We voluntarily enslave ourselves to money and sex and power. We, we give our hand to money and sex and power, ultimately because we do not trust God for our daily bread. When we come to believe that someone or something other than God has the power to grant us happiness and fulfillment, we come under the mastery of that someone or something. That is idolatry 101. 101. It doesn't just have to be money or sex or power. In some way or another, the worldly things that we are pursuing are found most fully in God. So if you want freedom from sin, if you want freedom from sin, you must train your heart to find its happiness and fulfillment in God, not in the things of this world. How? How do we train our hearts? There are a number of ways to go about it, but first and foremost, I think we do it through prayer. If Israel in this day had been a praying people, they probably wouldn't have looked to their enemies for what God had promised them. They would have asked God. We train our hearts in corporate worship. Um, the liturgy we walk through week after week—prayers and songs and scripture readings—it's designed to train our hearts um, according to the values and rhythms of the Christian life. So we we worship God, we confess our sin, we receive His forgiveness, we greet our neighbor, we hear from His Word, we dine at His table, and then we're sent back into the world renewed. We train our hearts in community. The book of Hebrews instructs us to exhort one another every day that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, we have a real spiritual responsibility to one another. And this spiritual responsibility has eternal ramifications. So when we exhort one another or rebuke one another in love or point one another back to Christ, we are corporately, collectively training our hearts to find their happiness and fulfillment in God. We could go on, but if we want freedom from sin, we must train our hearts to find their happiness and fulfillment in God, not in the things of this world. Verse seven, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Now, if you wanna jump ahead to verse 16, the poet is ready and willing to admit that he, um, he and the people had sinned. And so he's not here blaming previous generations for the current destruction. Rather, he's lamenting that the full weight of generations and generations of sin has fallen upon them at last. God was patient and slow to anger, but the sins of Israel, both past and present, are being punished together. Jump to verses 9 to 10. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. So provisions are scarce, and they search for food under peril. Bands of robbers lurk outside the city, and so they're having to choose between death in the wilderness and starvation in the city. So they're feverish with famine. Verses 11 through 12. Women are raped in Zion. Zion. Young young women in the towns of Judah, princes, are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. So within the very walls that were built to protect them, men and women, young and old, are suffering dishonor and disgrace. I think as we read through the book of Lamentations, it's tempting to think that all of this is very harsh and vindictive on the part of God. And so I want to make something clear here. Um, Israel's God, our God, was not above suffering, dishonor, and disgrace. We know that. The people were punished for their sin, but God was also willing to be punished for their sin. For instance, these were not the last princes of Israel to suffer in this way. The one true prince of Israel, Jesus Christ, would suffer a very similar dishonor. Like in verse 7, he would suffer for the sins of his fathers. Like in verse 13, he would stagger under a load of wood. And like in verse 12, he was hung up by his hands. So in the end, God did not stand aloof as his people suffered. Deism is the belief in a God who does not intervene in the affairs of this world. That is not the Christian God. The Christian God does intervene in the affairs of this world, and when he does so, it is glorious. Verses 13 to 15. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men, their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning. So the young men have left their instruments for hard manual labor. Israel's music is gone, along with joy and dancing and festival. The old men no longer congregate in the city gate, which means the society has totally fallen apart and the culture has died. Verse 16 the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The people, people of Israel had been adorned with honor and glory, but that was gone. And here, on behalf of the people, the poet makes a confession of sin. Verses 17 to 18. For this our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. So, Mount Zion was the mount where the temple sat. God's temple sat on Mount Zion. The temple was the physical place representing God's intimate presence with his people. And so, if that is desolate, what does it mean? It means God's gone. God was gone. Or so it seemed. And now we come to the very end of the book of Lamentations, verses 19 to 22. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And so the poet concludes the book of Lamentations with a paradoxical statement. Lord, even though it looks like the place of your dwelling has been abandoned, you are still on your throne. Your throne is immovable. And yet you've moved. You've left us. You've forgotten us. Please take us back. Unless you've utterly rejected us. Incredibly, the book of Lamentations concludes with a statement of doubt unless you've utterly rejected us. And once again, we are left to deal with the reality of God's silence in this situation. Throughout these five chapters, we see Israel's grief, the cause of Israel's grief, a statement of hope, a prayer of repentance, and now a petition to the Lord. Restore us, Lord. Restore us. Unless you've rejected us, Lord, silence. And really, that's how the season of Lent should end, I think. And that's how the Old Testament ends. God is silent. And yet we know that God heard these prayers. Israel was restored. And that story starts next week on Palm Sunday when the true prince of Israel enters Jerusalem to be hung up by his hands. And then on Easter Sunday, that prince restores us to God and and takes back his throne, answering the poet's petition here in Lamentations 5 with a resounding and eternal yes. So I'd like to discuss the poetic structure of Lamentations because I think the poet is doing something fascinating with the subtext here. Regrettably, much of this is lost when the Bible is translated from Hebrew to English, but beneath the surface of these verses, I think the book of Lamentations is making a clear statement of hope. First of all, we need to look back to Lamentations 1. Chapter 1 contains 22 verses. same number of letters are in the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, the poem in chapter one is a perfect alphabetical acrostic. In other words, verse one begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse two begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse three and so on, 22 verses, 22 letters in order. Got it? So clearly the poet has submitted himself to a rigid structure. Why? We've already discuss the power of poetry in helping us to process painful circumstances, but I think there's more to it than that. I think he's telling us something more. In the Bible, the alphabet represents totality. Proverbs 31 is an alphabetical acrostic presenting the total package woman. Psalm 119 is an alphabetical acrostic presenting the comprehensive goodness of God's law. On three separate occasions in the book of Revelation, Jesus refers to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the A and the Z, the beginning and the end. Jesus was the total human, the A to Z human. And so in Lamentations 1, which describes the judgment that fell upon Jerusalem, the implication is that this was a total judgment. A to Z judgment. The judgment was perfectly comprehensive. But remember, I I want to argue that Lamentations is making a statement of hope, not judgment. And so we move on to chapter two. In fact, chapters two, three, and four are all acrostic poems. They each contain the 22 verses of the Hebrew alphabet. However, in each of these chapters, two letters are flipped. Two verses are reversed. All 22 letters are represented, but they are slightly out of order. And we know know this was not an accident because it's the same two letters in each of these chapters. He's telling us something intentionally. And here's the implication, I think. Chapter one, total judgment. A to Z judgment. Chapters two, three, and four maybe that judgment wasn't as total as we thought. Maybe God will make a way out from underneath his judgment. Maybe. And then, we, then we come to chapter five. Chapter five has 22 verses, but the poet drops the acrostic format completely. There is no order to the verses. So unmistakably, God's judgment was not total. There is still hope. And that's reflected in verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. You see, total judgment was withheld here in the book of Lamentations. Even in the midst of what looked like total judgment and total destruction, there was an element of patience and long-suffering on the part of God. In fact, it wasn't until the crucifixion of the alphabet-made flesh, Christ, that total judgment was pronounced upon the sins of God's people. What does that mean? It means that for those of us who look to Jesus as our A to Z sacrifice for sin, A to Z judgment has already been pronounced upon our sin the price has been paid. No more condemnation remains. Jesus was forsaken and rejected on Jerusalem's behalf so that Jerusalem could be restored and renewed. And these things are eternally true for those of us who are in Christ. However, it also means that for those who reject Jesus, A to Z judgment remains a future reality. It's coming. That's not the most popular of messages, but if you do not look to Christ for salvation, total judgment still looms over your head. God is still patient and long-suffering. The door is still open. And in Christ, he has provided a way out. He didn't have to do that. God was gracious to provide a way out for us. But the consuming fire of judgment is coming, and and we shouldn't play with that. We should all trust in Jesus as our A to Z sacrifice at this very moment, myself included. Trust him. As Thomas Scott wrote, various tribulations may make our hearts faint and our eyes dim, but our way to the mercy seat of our reconciled God still is open. And we may beseech him not to forsake or forget us and plead with him to turn and renew us more and more by his grace, that our hopes may revive and our consolations abound as in the days of old. For the eternal and unchangeable God will not utterly reject his church or any true believer whatever our trials fears or lamentations may be let us then in all our troubles put our whole confidence whole trust and confidence in his mercy let us confess our sins and pour out our hearts before him so the judgment the judgment Jerusalem suffered was horrific so horrific that it could not be described with ordinary language. But the judgment Jerusalem suffered was neither final nor total. God has proven himself to be a patient, long-suffering judge, and he has provided a way out through Jesus Christ, his son. And either, either we let Jesus take our punishment. Or judgment is still coming. So let him, let him take your A to Z judgment and then look with hope to Easter Sunday. Because by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he accomplished our restoration and renewal. Our restoration and renewal. That's the very petition of Lamentations 5. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, you deal with us in reality. Um, this world is fallen, this world is broken, and we suffer often. And it is good to have portions of your scriptures that meet us there. So thank you for the, for the comprehensiveness of uh, your word to us. by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray, I pray that no one leaves this room tonight without having placed their trust in Christ as our A to Z sacrifice for sin. It's in his name we pray, amen.